You're listening to Canada's Court, your home for all your Canadian basketball needs. Here's your host, Philip Drost. Well, it's rare that I get to have an NBA champion on the podcast. Rarer still, having someone who's won the championship three times in a row. Montreal native Bill Wennington played for the Chicago Bulls during their second three-peat. And if you've been watching the documentary The Last Dance, you know exactly who that is. Bill has kindly agreed to chat with me about his role on one of, if not the, greatest basketball team of all time. Bill, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much, Philip. Glad to be here. What's it been like uh, for the past couple weeks for you watching this uh, documentary come out? Well, it's, it's been a lot of fun for me going down memory lane and <clears throat> rehashing all the great things that that team went through and how much fun it was to be a part of that. And it's obviously it's been fun for my family and myself, but uh, <clears throat> really for all of Chicago and the people to rehash it, it has been amazing. And it's actually kept me a little bit busy on the phones <laughs> talking to people, to be frank. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. I've been seeing your name uh, pop up all over the place. Uh, what's it been like for your family uh, getting to rewatch your glory days? Uh, it's, it's been a lot of fun. And it's funny how, you know, as time goes on, you forget a lot of little things and uh, rehashing stuff. We've forgotten that uh, Scotty sat out part of that year with a, having surgery at the end of the summer. And because the, the team did well and we a ended up winning, you forget all that stuff as time goes on. But it's it's been great just to go down. And they were, my son's old enough. He remembers it. My wife obviously was there with me. So it's been fantastic. When did they interview for this? How long ago was that? Uh, that was last summer, uh, June of last summer. They did it, so it was a year ago. Did you get a like a, a a little preview of it at all, or are you seeing it with the rest of us? I'm seeing it with the rest of you. I haven't, I haven't seen anything. I know some of the guys have seen things. I know Scotty saw at least the first couple of episodes. Uh, I know obviously Michael's probably seen the whole thing, and but and uh, obviously some uh, reporters have have seen the whole thing to be able to critique it and get ready for it, but. It's it's fun. And to be honest with you, it's fun to go through it with the rest of the country and all the rest of the world. Unless you're in Australia, apparently you get it first there because they're so far ahead of us time-wise. They get it out first. But uh, it, it is a lot of fun to, to see what is going on. And, and I get it. I know some people are like, oh, it's just all about Michael. But you know what? Deservedly so. Uh, he was the leader of that team. He, he was the driving force behind uh, all of us doing so well. So uh, it, I don't have a problem with that. I think it's great. You mentioned how there was there were some things you'd forgotten. Was there anything you've seen so far that you didn't even know about, or is this all kind of coming back to you? Uh, it's it's all coming back to me. I mean, I did not know that uh, Jerry Krause had had a meeting with Phil Jackson. Said, "I don't care if you go eighty-two and zero, you're not coming back." I didn't know that happened. I I had known that it was over, but I didn't know they had that conversation. Wow. And, uh, and uh, of course, uh, Scotty Pippen obviously sitting out for a bit. You mentioned that. What was it like for you being a part of that team when Michael Jordan came back? We obviously watched uh, this. The last couple episodes was about him a bit returning to the team. What was that like as a team, knowing that you've got this guy coming to play for you? 
Well, I played against Michael back in when I was in Dallas and Sacramento, so I, I know how good he was. I, I was not fortunate to play with him in the first three championships, but I know he's a game changer, and I know he can totally turn things around and, and put you back up on the top of the pedestal where you need to be or where you want to be, excuse me. And I was concerned because he only had 13 games to play and as great as Michael is, we still have to play with him. And playing with Michael Jordan on the floor is different than playing with anyone else. And you have to know how the timing changes, the spacing on the floor changes. Obviously, your defensive rotations change. And all of it for the better, but it still takes time to, to get used to it and, and just to, to learn it so you don't have to think about it while you're out there on the floor. You can just react to it and play. And the other part of it is, too, is, you know, and you saw a lot of it is his body was different. He'd been playing baseball for a year and a half. Would he have the stamina to get through the whole se- uh, the rest of the season and a long playoff run? So those were all concerns that I had as a experienced veteran player. But I'm going to be honest with you, when uh, he had that 55-point game in New York, I was thinking, wow, you know, <laughs> he's turned it around pretty quick, and that's going to be pretty darn good. How long do you think, I mean, this is purely speculative, but how long do you think it would have taken uh, for him and you guys to really get rolling? Like, how many games do you think you, you could have had to set you up for uh, a potential championship? Even that season? Like yeah, if, if he had came back 13? earlier. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He – I, I, I would want to say I'd like – I would have liked him to have played half the season. Uh, because he he's he's a veteran. He understands what it takes, and also obviously he's going to push his body to the limits. But what has to happen, I, in my opinion, and again, I'm not a athletic trainer or anything, but I think you have to push your body to the wall and break through it. And I think that's what was starting to happen in the playoffs that year. He was starting to hit that wall, and for, he would have had to break through that, and his body would have had to remember and go through all oh that's right i've done this before we can do it but you got to break through that wall and it happens to rookies every year you, you look at the they they've played 30 games in college and now all of a sudden they're playing 82 and you usually see their rookie season they they hit a wall and some of them break through it by the end of the season and and some of them don't they it takes till the next year but i'm, I'm sure if michael had played i'd say another 15 20 games on top of the 13 that he played so but that would bump it up to what 30, 30 games, thirty three games. Mm-hmm. I think he, I think that would have been enough time. Now, uh, obviously, one of the big adjustments, not just playing with him on the court, but having him around as a personality was certainly an adjustment for people, and it, it's kind of showed that throughout the documentary. Could you just uh, uh, retell, if you can, how you sort of approached playing with Michael as a personality, and how you you, you tried to earn his respect there? Well, you earn his respect by playing hard. And, and the, the first time he came in a locker room and, and sat down, I, I had met Michael before. I'd obviously I'd played against him. We were McDonald's All-Americans in high school together and pl- played the McDonald's All-American game with uh, uh, Patrick Ewing was on that team. Chris Mullen, who I played with at St. John's, was on that team. Uh, Buzz Peterson, his longtime friend and teammate at North Carolina with, with Michael was on that team. And I had seen Michael's competitive spirit then, back in high school, and the trash talking and, and how uh, driven he was to, to be good and, and desire to be the best at that time. So we had already had a little bit of history. I, St. John's played against North Carolina 
which I will say St. John's won that game, by the way, uh, and beat his North Carolina Tar Heels. So uh, it, it, it was fun to play with him. And he was excited to play with me because Michael, believe it or not, is a very loyal guy. And once once he likes you, it's, it's he's going to bend over backwards to help you out. But he told me right away that first, first day he was in camp, he was sitting on the trainer's table getting taped, and I was going to get taped after him. He says, Billy, man, we're finally going to get to play together. He goes, I want you to jump on the cape, but I need you to hold on tight, brother, because I'm going to try and kick you off, and it's going to be a bumpy ride, but if you hang on, great things are going to happen. And, you know, that's the way it started. So I knew right away how intense things were going to be, and he picked it up. And fortunately for me, I'd already been on some good basketball teams at St. John's, and also there in Chicago, Scotty Pippen took us to 55 games the year Michael retired and, and elevated the practice uh, energy so much, but Michael took it to a whole different level. So uh, I, I was ready. I understood what was going to happen and uh, did not receive the wrath of Michael that often because I was uh, <laughs> tr- trying hard to keep up. Now, what was it like seeing him have some of those uh, intense reactions and, and interactions we've seen in the documentary with, with not just other teammates, but with the uh, management as well? Was there Ever a time where you thought about saying, hey, you know, easy, or is it just uh, that's something you got you got to leave with him? That's something you leave with him. He was, the, he, he was driving the team. He and Phil were in control of everything and, and created the uh, dialogue of what was going on. And, and that was kind of the way it was. It was us against the world, and management was part of the world. And that, that's a common thread in strategies with a, with a lot of teams. I'd played on other teams that did the same thing. And, that team took it to a new level, but honestly, the two sides didn't help themselves. And you know, not to bash Jerry Krause anymore, but you know, he couldn't get out of his own way sometimes. And it, when he was looking for, you know, maybe a little bit of credit or, or something or a pat on the back once in a while, but you can't come out and say the things that he said. And and he just fed into the hysteria that was going on. And Michael was Michael; he wanted to win. And he was looking, as you see, he was looking for anything and everything to motivate himself and the rest of us uh, to win basketball games. And he was trying to make every practice game-like, which he did, which is why I think we were successful, because they were game-like. Games were actually easy, easier for us than our practices were. But that, that's who he was, and I think the rest of us accepted that and, and quite honestly, Philip thrived in it. Were the, the tensions that we see in the documentary what, with management, were they as bad as, as you, sh- you see there? Yep. Wow. <laughs> it, 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 that's being portrayed correctly. Yeah. And, and it was, you know, and I, I'm not saying that's a good thing or a bad thing. Mm-hmm. It's just that's the way it was. And uh, you, had, you had to deal with it. And you, you did it the best. And we went out there. There were 12 guys in a locker room playing together. And we were a unit. And Phil made sure that every one of us knew what our role was and what we were supposed to do and how we were supposed to act and get out there and take care of business. What was it like for you when you heard the, the comment from Jerry Krause saying that uh, teams don't win championships? I know there was some uh, uh, debate on whether how clear that wording was when he said it, but teams don't win championships, organizations do. What, what was your reaction at the time when you heard that? Well, I, when you hear it, you, you obviously as a player, you're thinking – What's he talking about? But, and I understand the point he was trying to make mm-hmm. that it, it's not just the players, it's everything. But the way it came out was wrong and the way it was, uh, I guess, transcribed or printed out afterwards obviously made him 
looked very bad. And honestly, why are you even saying that at that point? It, it, it is what it is. The team won the championship. Just enjoy it. And things are going well. But that that's part of Jerry's downfall is he was looking to get some credit somewhere, somehow. And not just for him, I think for the whole organization and, and Jerry Reisdorf, who has been a great owner, uh, to be honest with you. And just that those type of things can get misconstrued and and people can take it the wrong way and take offense to it. But as a player, you do take offense to it because you're the guy out there on the floor, you know, sweating and bleeding and diving for loose balls and getting rebounds to make it happen. And it just seems like someone else is trying to take the credit for your work. Yeah. What are the other uh, uh, big personalities we've obviously seen? There's a lot of personalities throughout the documentary, but uh, Dennis Rodman uh, was featured in one of the episodes and obviously a big part of the team. Uh, what was it like playing with him? Did you ever uh, uh, join him on any of his adventures? Oh, yeah. D- Dennis was a great teammate. He-, he was a lot of fun to be around. Dennis and I rode motorcycles <clears throat> here in Chicago when the weather warmed up uh, in the summer times a little bit. Uh, it was fun to go out with once in a while. I, I mean, Dennis has a much longer uh, or bigger candle to burn at night than I do. <laughs> so, so it was a little bit uh, difficult to go out with him often, but go out once in a while. And to be honest with you, Dennis was a showman. He was, he was an entertainer. When the cameras were on and the lights were on at night and he was out in public, he was a different, totally different person. Uh, when he was with us in practice, he was knowledgeable. He was one of the smartest basketball players I know. He worked hard. He wanted to win. And, and he was very, very intelligent with, with his basketball knowledge. But when the night lights came on and he was out, and he was a, a showman. And it was more fun to watch the people that came up to Dennis and wanted to talk tattoos, motorcycles, body piercings, and just, we, we called it the, the dark side, the dark side <laughs> stuff uh, with Dennis. And it, it was just amazing. All walks of life that would come up to Dennis and start to talk to him and show him tattoos. And it was that anyone from every spectrum of life you can imagine. And obviously you th- you're thinking of, you know, the wild side and the crazy stuff, but you get doctors and lawyers and teachers coming up and the same thing. And, I'm going to be honest with you, when he started playing for the Bulls, my, my mother saw him, and halfway through the season, I go to visit her, and she comes to Chicago to watch a game, comes to watch a game, and she says, Billy, I'm sorry, I love you very much, you're my son, but Dennis Rodman is my favorite Bull. <laughs> How did that she feel? Just, <laughs> she, just, she just loved his character and his spirit, and, and, and it was phenomenal. And I get it, because he was, honestly, he was a great guy to be around, a lot of fun. Awesome. And uh, what was it like? Uh, did the team really understand the full extent of that trip uh, we saw talked about in that final season where he just takes his uh, vacation, I guess, and goes to Las Vegas? Did everybody understand what was happening? Yeah, we all knew it. And uh, everyone's complaining today. Oh, my God, that wouldn't go over today. But I, I disagree. That's what load management is today. Guys mm-hmm. take games off all the time. And in the beginning, he wasn't taking games. He was taking two days off. Uh, that were days off. We had no games. Now we extended it a little bit, and and so that that's not a bad thing. But we understood who Dennis was and what he was doing. And Scotty had just gotten back, and Dennis said he needed a rest, and Phil Phil agreed to it. And we actually it was funny when it happened because we're all in the building and practice, getting ready for practice, and 
we see Dennis come in. He goes upstairs. He comes down, and then come down. We start practice, and Phil starts practice off. Uh, Dennis is going away for a couple of days. He needs a break, and that's it. Let's go. Yeah. And we all just look. We all just look at each other and like, okay, let's go. Yet, and we're not mad at Dennis. We get it. He, he needs. He needed time off, and we knew we needed Dennis to win, win a championship. So if Dennis needed a day off, that's fine. Now, one of the things I was curious about as I watched it, uh, it, it talks about Michael Jordan going to his hotel room and, and saying, hey, we got to go, and then him obviously coming and going right to practice. Did he, Michael, actually go to, like, Las Vegas and search around for him? And then, or do you guys have a game nearby? How'd that work out? That You know what? I don't think he went to Vegas to get him. Okay. He may have gone to his house. Gotcha. And... That that was misleading because I don't remember Michael going to Vegas, and, and I don't know how Michael could go to Vegas because it would take him a whole day to go get him and bring him back. But I think I think Dennis went to Vegas for a couple of days, came back, and was sleeping in. Uh, and Michael went over to his house and said, "Come on, bro, let's practice." That's my recollection mm-hmm. of it. I'm, it's it's not one hundred percent clear in my mind how it happened, but I thought that was a little misleading in the documentary that. You know, maybe he, Michael went to Vegas as well, but I don't think that was the case. Yeah, that makes a little more sense to me. I was trying to figure out how the timeline worked and how he could do that and then bring him to practice right away. So that, that clears things up a little bit for me. Um, <laughs> what were, what, obviously, we've seen so much from this whole thing, but has there any been, been any moments or, or parts of that championship, the three-peat, that stood out to you that you really remember fondly? Uh, of the three P, I, I I remember the the whole experience was amazing, and and one of the best things about it had nothing to do with the, the way we played. It was the locker room and the characters and the friendships and bonds that we all made in a locker room, and and a lot of that is attributed to Phil Jackson, how he kept everyone everyone's ego in check and made sure that everyone understood what their role was on the team. Because when you have twelve. NBA basketball players in a room. All of them were great players in college and, and probably the best players on their high school teams. And everyone wants to play. And somehow a coach has to blend all those guys into one unit. And Phil did that better than anyone else. But in doing that, he made each and every one of us appreciate <clears throat> our own roles, but also every other role on the team. And the friendships that were built during that time are huge and that bond is so strong today when I run into guys that maybe I haven't seen in a couple of years because they live in a different part of the country or another country for that matter uh, it's right back to the mid 90s and we're back in the locker room and and catching up with each other like it was yesterday when we last talked so that, that's the thing that I that I remember and, and cherish the most just the friendships that we had at that time <clears throat> on that team one of the uh, other things that's been mentioned in the documentary was uh, how Michael Jordan liked to have uh, a bit of money from all of his teammates in his pocket. Did he ever win any money off you? Well, that's a funny story uh, because I didn't play. They were, they were playing uh, Tonk at the time, and I wasn't back there playing a lot. And I would go back and try and play a couple times, but you know they had their four guys. They had their little group going, and so they, they didn't want to bump it up too much. Uh, and have another hand come in. But one time, I can't remember who wasn't on the trip or didn't make it. It was either Scotty or Ron Harper. Maybe it was Scotty. So I went in and, and took Scotty's place, and we're playing. And when the game was over, I actually had won like 150 bucks. Not very much. <laughs> 150 bucks. <laughs> so 
It was good. And Michael was not happy. So he was like, get out of here. You're not playing anymore. And he was, he was really upset. Well, you know, I go back the next flight. Hey, can I play? No, get out of here. And, and so, all right, so I go back. So finally, like two or three weeks later, Michael comes back up. Hey, come on. You're playing today. We need you. All right. Well, he ended up, he ended up winning that day. <laughs> and he won it. I think I'll end up losing a couple hundred bucks. And he, ended up, he goes, that's it. I got my money back, and I got yours now. Get out of here. Now you're not playing anymore. <laughs> And it, it, that's how competitive he was. And, again, in practice, if you made a shot over him or blocked his shot, he was going to come at you and challenge you uh, either to do it again or, or back down. He wanted to see what you were made of. But he definitely was competitive and, and obviously wanted to win. And uh, his winning attitude helped us all get, get some championships. And that's really people might say oh it's a detriment he was hard on guys no, he wasn't hard on guys you know winning winning takes dedication and sacrifice and he wanted to make sure everyone knew exactly what they were getting into and what it was going to be like if we were in the NBA finals what was it do you think about your own personality that made it so you were able to to kind of take everything with a grain of salt and and, and handle that intensity obviously you know what the end result is but what was it that made you be able to do that well there's a lot of things obviously life experiences happen to you and you go through your life and you have different things happen how you deal with adversity is what makes you and I had a great high school basketball coach uh in New York where I was when I was playing for Long Island Lutheran and Bob McKillop and he pushed me and he was he was he was tough on me too uh, Lou Conaseca was a guy that liked to raise his voice and yell and scream. Now, not derogatory or getting your face stuff, but ha- had a lot of energy and stuff. I played for Dick Mata with the Dallas Mavericks, and Dick Mata was very stern and strict, his way or the highway. And so I, I had experienced coaches and played with Chris Mullen, who was driven and was a gym rat and was going to the gym all the time. And all those make up, obviously, who you are and, and how you play and react to things. And so when I got to Michael, it was a combination of all those things. It was just like, okay, this is business as usual. And, yeah, he's going to get on me, but he wants me to be a better player because he wants to win. And he knows that he needs me to do my job to win a championship. So I accepted that, and I stepped up to the challenge as best I could. And and, and every single time I was challenged, I, I stepped up to it. So, you know, hey, did I fail sometimes? Yeah, of course. That's, that's part of the game. But uh, – we succeeded much more often than not. What's it like being uh, the winningest Canadian basketball player of all time? <laughs> I hadn't actually thought of that. Uh, it's pretty good. You know what? Winning, winning is, is fantastic. That's why we play the game. Uh, yes, it's fun. Uh, and it, it is a lot of fun. And I would have played bas- I wouldn't have played that basketball for free. I mean, it's, it's, it, it's work. <laughs> But, you know, I, I go down, and, and to this day, I'll go down to the park and shoot and, or to the gym and just shoot, get some shots up. And if a couple of guys are playing, we'll, we'll get a little game going. But uh, it is just fun to get out there and play the game, and I love the game. But it's about winning. Mm-hmm. Uh, anytime you play a game, anyone that says they're just playing for the fun of it, no, you're trying to win. And, the, yes, camaraderie and everything's there, but you want to win because winning is better than losing. And especially when you're playing with guys that become your friends, because now the trash talking starts and the bragging rights start. And that's, that's what the fun of the game is. But winning puts it over the edge. And especially when you can win championships and be, be the pinnacle 
of your craft, uh, whatever craft that is, whether you get an awards for teaching or being a lawyer or playing any sport, uh, when you win, it's phenomenal because you understand and realize all the hard work that you put in to get there. And when I say that, I mean from the time you first pick up a basketball and I'm playing at the YMCA in the West Island of Montreal and I was just introduced to the game at 12 years old and how I was horrible, but then how hard I worked at it to get better and to get where I am. That's what you realize when you win a championship like that, and that, that makes it all worth it. What was the most challenging part of that third season? They say, you know, winning one is incredibly difficult. Winning two is almost impossible, and winning three is just rarely ever done. What was it like that third season, knowing that you had so much to overcome? It, it was tough, and also, but honestly, I think the way it worked out was was kind of inspirational. I mean, it kind of worked out with the last dance still starting off the season. This is it. Because that was a tool that we were able to regain our focus and keep the focus on the task at hand, which was winning basketball games every night. Because the focus, it really gets hard as you go on. You win a championship, that's great. But then uh, Luke Conasecki used to say, you know, a fat cat doesn't win anything. And when you get comfortable with who you are and what you're doing, and if you just think you're going to win, that's when you lose focus. And so for Phil actually to have that last dance and, and refocus our attention on, on winning basketball games and not about what we have done, but what we had to do and how this, this is it. Let's make it happen one last time. This is going to be it really helped out because there are a lot of distractions. One, everyone's older injuries, creep into play all the time. Uh, Dennis was losing focus a little bit and and needed a little bit more time off, uh, albeit at the beginning of the season he was phenomenal because Gotti was hurt and not not playing. But just so many things come into play. And then then the immediate tension was was really surreal. And everyone thought we were too old. Michael was too old. He can't do it. He can't carry this team anymore. Uh, You know, this guy's not as good as he used to be. He can't carry the load. And all it was just all crazy stuff. And the, the odds were really stacked against him. And then you get the, the average fans that, are, you know what, the Bulls have won enough. Let's root <laughs> for someone else. And so there are so many distractions. But that team really did a great job of, of keeping its focus. A bunch of guys that were mature, under, again, understood what their roles were and what they had to do night in and night out. Now, uh, obviously, a lot of this documentary is built on behind-the-scenes footage from that last dance, that last season. Uh, but you've got your own collection of uh, uh, behind-the-scenes footage. Do you ever go back and watch that, and uh, or, or do you have any plans for that at all? I have no plans for it. Uh, actually, I hadn't watched it in a long time, but I went back and started watching some of the tapes when the documentary came out because they, they actually had asked me if I would give them to them or let them use them. And I, I thought about it for a minute and I watched a couple of them and I said, you know what, these these are mine. I told the guys when I was filming it, they, they were for me and you'd never see them. Um, and so I declined to give them access to them. I don't know if that, that'll be the case forever, but it is fun to look back and, and look at those memories and see what's going on. And there's a lot more of the behind the scenes stuff and just us off the basketball court, either working out in the gym or on the bus rides and plane rides. And you know what? Just a team being a team off the court. 
Why was that something you uh, you wanted to do at that point in your life? Why did you want to record all that? I was uh, always into cameras and photography, and uh, just took my camera around with me, and I was doing it. It was just part of who I was, I guess. <clears throat> now I'll ask you one last thing. I talked to your uh, your coworker Chuck Swirsky uh, uh, a couple weeks ago about the the last dance, and I asked him if he was had uh, anything I should ask you. And he mentioned that uh, basketball wasn't your first sport, but you you had to you had to change sports because of an equipment problem. Could you tell me a bit about that? <laughs> did he tell you what the equipment was? He, I, I, he did. Well, we don't have to tell we don't have to tell your listeners. They can just use their imagination. <laughs> Are we allowed to say what what sport it was that uh, yeah. you started no, I, out I, in? I, uh, come on, I'm <laughs> Canadian from Montreal. What do you, you think it was? I could skate before I could walk. So uh, I remember my, I remember one of my earliest memories, and I was about two years old. My parents took me out to the ice rink uh, outside, and I had the little blades on my feet, and I was out skating around at two years old. Uh, so I played hockey till I was 12 years old, and the, the problem was I had a size 14 skate uh, shoe, and I couldn't get skates anymore when I was 12 years old. Ooh. So I could no longer play hockey. And not that I was a great player. I wasn't. I, I was mostly in house league, and I think I made the travel team once. Uh, uh, as I was getting older, but I was also six foot two at the time, so I was very tall already. And uh, by chance, I ran into someone at the the Point Claire swimming pool, and Doug Alexander, who used to work, uh, write for the News and Chronicle out in the West Island, and asked me if uh, I'd ever played basketball, and I said no. But he thought I was about sixteen, seventeen years old, and I was only <laughs> actually at the time I was eleven, and uh, he started asking me if I'd think about if I wanted to play, and I. I said, okay, go ask my mom. She's over there. And he talked to my mom. And that uh, fall, I signed up for basketball and found out how bad I was at basketball, but really loved the game. That's what I tell people is the first thing I learned about basketball is that I loved it. I loved the competition and playing with the guys. As bad as I was, uh, I wanted to get better at it. And I started playing every day and going to camps. And here I am today. Safe to say it worked out pretty well for you. Yeah, I, I think so. I think I think it's been pretty good, and you know, and, but I still love hockey though, and it's great. I still love my Canadians. My Habs are, are great, but uh, also <clears throat> I know it's tough. But I also like the Blackhawks now because I've been in Chicago now since '93, so I know that uh, doesn't rub too bad. But to make up for it, I still hate the Leafs okay. even more. Well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, Bill, it's been a, a lot of fun chatting with you. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Uh, my pleasure anytime and glad we could do it and Bill take care and have a great summer and stay safe. That was Bill Wennington, three time NBA champion with the Chicago Bulls. If you like what you heard, please feel free to leave a rating and review. Let me know what you think of the podcast. Uh, if you have any thoughts, please leave them there or you can send me an email, Canada's Court Podcast at gmail.com. You can always reach me there or, or on Twitter at Canada's Court. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening.